It's connecting. Hi, everyone. I see 180 folks gathering for our panel discussion scheduled for 11 a.m. I'm very grateful that we're relatively on schedule, which is always nice. This is a time for us to digest together the three papers that we heard from Jerry, Jane, and Melissa. We invite questions from the audience, and I'll be keeping an eye on the question and answer tab. I just wanted to begin by giving some time and space for Jerry, Jane, and Melissa to interact with each other's papers. Um, I'm going to be formulating some of my thoughts as well. I have some interest to pursue, but I just want to um, pause and just give Jerry, Jane, and Melissa a chance to, to, talk, to talk with each other first. Don't be shy. Well, uh, Jane, Melissa, I really appreciated both of uh, your talks. So uh, thank you so much for uh, bringing an important angle to uh, the current crisis that we're facing. Uh, I, I suppose the uh, if this question is not too wonky, uh, Melissa, what are you going to do uh, with, with these uh, findings that you've already accumulated uh, with all these newspaper studies? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. It's almost like you were reading my mind, Dr. Park. Um, so we have been working with a GIS specialist and we are mapping these and we have a website. So my um, research team is virulenthate.org. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be fully released with interactive maps and reports beginning next week, we hope, for Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Wow. Um, and our goal long term is to continue this research to cover 2021 um, and increase the geographic scope. Um, I should also add one thing that one of my research assistants said one day was, uh, there are a lot of community organizations, Professor Borhan. Maybe we should make a list of those. And so one of my students just took the initiative to start gathering them. And she created a, a, a list of 600 Asian American community organizations in the U.S. And so we're going to also put that up there. We just know that there's been an outpouring of interest in supporting Asian American community organizations, which are critical to making sure that everyday Asian Americans are connected with the resources they need. And so that's another um, part of the work that we're going to put on our website. So this is all really intended to be for public consumption and for um, empowering local activists and informing public policy. Wow. If I could jump in on that. So Melissa, out of the 600 that your researchers have found, roughly how many would you say would be religious, broadly religious? What would you say is the breakdown? I, I So I don't think we were really intentional about getting religious institutions, to be honest. So I think only a small fraction, but I, I could be wrong. Which I think relates to a question I have for you, Dr. Burke, which is, um, you know, how, how do you find, like, if one were to find all the Asian American religious institutions and charities, what is the best way to do that? Because I know, for example, that it's really meaningful for uh, a community to connect with, uh, to, for an individual to connect with a community of their faith. So how would you guide people in that process? Yeah, uh, there's a, a number of challenges. And so what what we can't do in, in all likelihood, unless somebody dropped like, yeah, hundreds of millions of dollars would be a census 
of all the religious communities uh, that Asian Americans participate in. So uh, we go for the next best thing, uh, which would be a proportional sampling, which is what uh, using the CMPS would be a launch pad for. So CMPS uh, claims that they've got a representative oversampling of Asian Americans. Uh, and if we follow the uh, patterns that we saw in the National Congregation Study, uh, I'm expecting about 900 of those 4,000 folks to possibly mention the name or location of a church uh, or some kind of, uh, yeah, that would be just for the Christians. Uh, there's actually the non-Christians too, and they've got a, a different list that we'll be working with. So uh, that's probably what we're going to be doing as far as how to reach out. Uh, I tried an experimental question. I don't know if it's going to work, but I do know a lot of people say that I don't have a religion, especially a lot of Asian Americans. And so uh, we had a follow-up question that said, for anybody that didn't attend anywhere uh, at all, right? Uh, do you happen to have a place that's meaningful to you, a community? And would you name that place or uh, that group or the, or the location of that? And so I'm wondering if that might be a way to do comparisons between people who feel connected but aren't part of anything that's um, traditionally religious, but they still think of it as important, right? And then uh, we can investigate, ask people, why is this important to you? and see if that's similar to or different from the language of people that are in traditional churches. So uh, it's all yeah, speculative at this point. We, uh, we need funding and we need to uh, see what the next steps would be, but that's what we have in mind. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. I had we one have, question. Um, go for it, Jane. Unless you wanna to jump to. I mean, so I think that, I mean, Dr. Park and Dr. Borja, your work is incredibly important um, because, you know, without without numbers, without documenting problems or without documenting incidents, you know, for U.S. officials, state, you know, state folks, the problem doesn't exist, like until you can document it and kind of um, give them firm, concrete numbers. Um, so I think that's incredibly important. One conversation I've been hearing among, I know there is a conversation among some scholars about kind of some of the challenges of that data and kind of there's a whole conversation about like decolonizing data, data collection. And I went to a panel at the Asian American Studies Conference um, last week or two weeks ago about that topic. And I know there were questions about the use of the data and challenges about what happens to the data once it's released. And I guess I just wondered if you had thoughts about those conversations that are also happening. Because I think, I think generally speaking, yeah, it is incredibly important to document everything. But then once the data is out there, I know it can be challenging because you don't, get to say how the data is used, by whom it's used, and those kinds of questions. I just wonder about your thoughts on that, kind of on that topic. This is a, a great question. And this is why I have been very enthusiastic about using open source content. I mean, there's a certain uh, utility in using stories that are already in news media and gathering data through those sources. So I know actually, for example, a group like ACLID, which tracks political violence overseas, they, they have um, relied on incidents reported in news media. And I think that there's real advantages to that um, in terms of wanting to be sensitive to the needs of the community. The other reason why it's really useful, I think, is for advocacy purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, um, with Stop AAPI Hates Data, which is anonymous and self-reported, they can't tell you, for example, that it was Sally Lee who experienced this incident at Sam's Club. 
Um, but if it's reported in the Indianapolis Star, then all you have to do is share the link and you have a person and a story. So I often like to say that what my team is doing is not so much collecting numbers, although we clearly do that, but we are compiling stories. And the stories are what shape political actors more than numbers. I'm sorry, Dr. Park. I know numbers do matter. <laughs> we need both, qualitative, quantitative. <laughs> but but I, I do think putting a face and a name yeah. to an experience is very politically impactful. And so we are pretty transparent about our methods and how we use it, but that's why we draw on open source material. I want to highlight a question from the chat. Let me try to formulate it here. This, this um, dovetails with Professor Hong's presentation discussing the formation of ethnic studies departments versus the demands for third world studies by protesters. How do the differences between the two influence one, pulpit ministries and two, theological education? So maybe the broader question here would be, what difference did the Third World Liberation Front or the Asian American Liberation Movement make for church ministries, so pulpit ministries, and then theological education? No, I think this is a great question. I mean, I think the demands for Third World Studies inherent and kind of built into that idea is that there is a diasporic element, right? That, that people of color in the United States, these groups are connected to people of color in Asia, in Africa, and other parts of the globe. So I think that kind of diasporic transnational element, in some ways, I mean, this is an ongoing conversation even within ethnic studies and Asian American studies specifically. I mean, as I mentioned, I think several of us, I think all of us actually were at the Asian American studies conference in the last couple of weeks. And there's always panels about transnationalizing Asian American studies, diasporic connections, because I mean, the political project of Asian American studies in some ways initially was to claim a space in the United States to say that Asian Americans are Americans, right? And that Asian American history is US history. And so there's a very, that's a very important project. In many ways, it's an ethnic project. And so I think within the field of Asian American history in particular, early on, there was a real emphasis on kind of situating Asian Americans within US history and not as much perhaps linking them to Asia. And I think that has shifted over the years as politics have shifted. And now there's more capaciousness within the field. I mean, so I think when, so when folks like Roy Sano, Wilbur Choi and other um, Asian American Christian faith leaders took these ideas into the theological academy, I mean, I think in many ways, the more kind of, I mean, I can't say in every case, but I know for example, that um, one of the kind of earliest examples of clergy taking Asian American studies into the university, into seminaries. Um, UC Berkeley actually hosted specific ethnic studies courses on Asian American churches as a community institution, like in the mid 1970s. Um, and they brought in like pastors, um, church leaders from Chinatown, San Francisco, from um, Japantown and brought them into the classroom as resources and framing kind of religious institutions, again, as community, right, as community organizations. And that was one kind of entry point. Um, at least within kind of secular ethnic studies departments. In, you know, in seminaries, I think the impact has been uneven. Um, there were Asian American studies courses taught at, I think, I think it was GTU. I'm trying to remember exactly which um, seminaries, Claremont School of Theology. 
I know Princeton Theological Seminary had an Asian American center program or something along those lines as early as the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s. And so, you know, I think mainline, mainline denominational organizations, the mainline denominations seminaries were more receptive to these early on. Um, I have done research into, I've spent many months in the Fuller, <laughs> in the basement of the Fuller Library, in the Fuller Archive. So I know there were similar conversations happening at Fuller, which I think, I'm not sure about then, but I now is the largest evangelical seminary in America. And so there were similar conversations about bringing ethnic studies, attention to Asian American communities into the curriculum. Um, but I think for, for Fuller, I mean, it was again, uneven, right? So there are moments where these courses were offered largely in response to student demands, but then there was also periods when these courses were not offered. And so there wasn't necessarily a kind of um, even or regular institutional commitment to these um, questions until really the 1990s, early 2000s, you could argue. Um, so. I think depending on what church, what seminaries, what institutions you're talking about, the impact has been, has been uneven. But I think the fact that you have an Asian American program now at a place like at PTS, that you have an Asian American center at Fuller Theological Seminary, and there is more institutional support, I think you do you, you are seeing a change, right, in, in institutional stories about Asian American studies. Jerry, Melissa, you wanna jump in on this one? Uh, I was going to jump uh, backward towards the first question that uh, Jane had asked about what do we do with the data that once we have to make it public. Um, uh, I was invited into a, um, I guess you'd call it like a public scholarship kind of group. I think, Melissa, you're part of this too. Uh, Jennifer Ho is is uh, running a lot of it and uh, there's a lot of luminaries in there. And uh, yeah, what what occurred to me as I was thinking about your question, Jane, was it may be that for those of us scholars that want to uh, make uh, Asian Americans more included in all kinds of uh, stories that are uh, popular for academics as well as for the public, uh, we're gonna have to take a more public role so that when other people start taking this data once it's publicly accessible and they start spinning stories that are not what uh, these data were meant to do, uh, we need to be able to step up. We need to be aware of it. We've gotta be able to, coordinate and what I hope is uh, we'll do things differently. Instead of saying you're on your own, you know, to keep track of all this, that we work as a community of scholars and say, uh, oh, did you know that uh, some, you know, some right-wing uh, conservative group is starting to use your data to say that, you know, Asian Americans don't want affirmative action. Like, oh no, right? So uh, now we have to figure out like, who, am I in charge of all that now? I've got to figure this out. Well, hopefully if we can do this as a community, we can at least alert each other and then uh, come up with coordinating efforts, get tips on like, this is how you would respond to that and all that sort of thing. Instead of each person, you know, just singularly on their own, trying to put out every single fire uh, because that data is available publicly. So that that's sort of like my first uh, response in thinking about what happens when that data goes public. Melissa, I know you but to me, I think the bigger issue is there isn't enough data and it's not accessible mm -hmm. enough. I think that's the bigger problem. And so I, throughout the past few months in particular, I've just been bombarded with requests like, how many incidents have happened in America? And it, like, this is an important question. You want to know how many incidents have happened in the state of Michigan? They need to know these things in order to ask their elected officials to be held accountable. 
And I think that is a bigger responsibility of us in this moment. But I think Jerry's exactly right. We need to be active on all fronts. We not need to not just be active in producing the data. We need to be active in helping people interpret it and share it and understand it. And we need to be involved in that type of knowledge production at all levels of society. Yes. I've got um, a great question here from Joshua. How do we share Asian American history? How do we share Asian American history and experiences with others when we are invisible and what we say is often dismissed as fake news by American society and the American church? <laughs> Do you want to take that? <laughs> you mean by we, by we, we, um, I think the, the question is about kind of Asian Americans are invisible, Asian American scholars. Yeah. You know, it's a funny question. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I, I was about to say, it's a, it's a funny question because on one hand, we're both hyper visible and invisible. And so I always have a hard time squaring that. Like, how can you miss these glasses? These are very big glasses. I'm pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do think that we should appreciate that we are in a moment of greater visibility than ever before. And I think that's one reason why we're making gains. And so one reason why we are talking about Asian American issues in 2020, 2021 is partly because our stories are on stage more. Our stories are in children's books more. Um, we have more elected officials who care about our issues because they are Asian American. And so I, I think this is actually changing. I think we are becoming more visible. Um, but I, I, I hear the question and I hear the pain, which is we have been ignored. And I think the issue is how can we, um, how can we continue to leverage this moment? so that we can build long-term infrastructural changes to continue to be part of the bigger conversation. I mean, I think part of the question really is about like, how can Asian Americans make their histories more legible to the wider American public, which is largely, I mean, when we say American public, we largely mean maybe white folks. Um, so how do we make Asian American history relevant, interesting, important enough? Um, I mean, I think one way is through, I mean, just through kind of situating Asian Americans relative to kind of other communities of color historically, and to think about how Asian Americans fit into the broader story of, you know, white supremacy and structural racism. And I think that's what a lot of us try to do in our work. I know that's most tries. I mean, this is what many of us try to do in our work. In some ways, though, it's also what Asian American studies scholars have to do in their work. Because if you can't make yourselves legible to, to hiring committees, um, journal editors and things, you don't get published and you don't get jobs, right? Because I think so we all have like different ways of making ourselves legible. So I think scholars, and this isn't just a scholarly thing. I think all of us, right? I think all of us in our different places, like whether it be churches, denominational structures, organizations, communities, right? You, you all, I think we all have some, I think we all have more experience than we realize in making ourselves legible and kind of situating ourselves within the different kind of multiracial dynamics of American life, right? Because we all live um, in this world. If you have kids, like you have to kind of figure out how to navigate things. So, I mean, I think 
number one, I think we have more practice than we realize. And number two, I, I think it is really important to think about how Asian Americans are connected to other histories of oppression and not, but not in ways that co-opt other movements, right? To think about the things that we all share in common, right? The solidarity that we can show um, our black brothers and sisters, all that next month, brothers and sisters, and even within Asian America, our sick brothers and sisters, right? I know Melissa's in Indianapolis, right? So I mean, the FedEx shooting and just all of the conversation about, you know, why is it that you know, hashtag stop Asian hate was why didn't it trend after um, those four sick Americans were killed yeah. in this most recent mass shooting or one of the most recent mass shootings. So I think these are all questions we should really ask ourselves. But yeah, and so th this is an important question. But I think, yeah, I think also, as Melissa said, as Dr. Bohr has said, I think it is important, yeah, to use the opportunities that we have, right? However, we can. Yeah, I, I'd add to that. Uh, Please. It, we, we want, I think, uh, two things to happen at the same time. One is uh, greater networking with allies uh, who are already in positions of influence uh, in education as well as communications, right? Um, following the, the, the research that you've all seen about the model minority stereotype, we have a lot of Asian Americans already represented in like engineering and science, but not so much in things like communication and education. So. Uh, we want to um, encourage a new generation of uh, folks to get involved in these other uh, um, areas, communication, education. But we also want to find those allies and advocates that are uh, maybe not of Asian American background, but they are sensitive to and realize that uh, Asian Americans are invisible in our elementary and high school level textbooks, for example. Right? I feel like a lot of this uh, conversation can be addressed if Asian Americans were, were at least part of the story of what uh, an American identity and history is supposed to look like. Um, I can say that for myself and from uh, other people I've read, uh, many of us have not had almost any exposure. And if we were lucky, we saw it in college only, as far as where uh, Asian Americans fit into our larger identity. So uh, we wanna change that. I think if we can change what the narrative reads like to somebody who's six years old, 10 years old, 15, uh, I think that's going to have some larger scale uh, impacts. And already as, as a, uh, Dr. Borja brought up, uh, there's a number of children's books. Um, I, I've been astonished with, with my seven-year-old son. Uh, I've been looking for these materials. And I'm like, wow, I never had anything of this volume uh, in my life. And this is remarkable. So uh, he's working in a very different context. We've got Raya. Uh, he's all over that now, right? Um, he's just watched that like three or four times. We didn't have anything like that. I think we had Mulan, and then we waited for another 15 years before anything else came out. I have a follow-up on the legibility, illegibility issue, unless Melissa wanted to jump in. So part of me just thought, um, Jerry, in your presentation, you mentioned how one of the most current studies of congregations pretty much assumed white Protestant um, measure, uh, standards of measurement, so, thus rendering Asian American congregations illegible. Right. And so there's something about the categories that thought leaders, so I'm thinking of just public intellectuals, media outlets, academics, disciplines, the categories they employ themselves have certain biases oftentimes racially inflected. And so 
as a as a sociologist of religion, you're very keen on addressing some of these uh, the, the disproportionate representation of some folks, but not others, thus encouraging Asian American religious institutions for greater participation, which makes us more legible, right? Right. And I'm thinking back to a comment that Jane made in her uh, in her presentation about in the 1960s, so this was a question from the audience about mainline churches, evangelical churches. Back in the 60s and 70s, Jane's comment was, it's a porous relationship between the mainline churches and the evangelical churches when it comes to Asian American Christians. So that to me tells me there's something perhaps limiting about these categories, mainline, evangelical, when the subject matter are Asian American religious people who have a trans-Pacific history extending beyond the history of Protestantism in America. So for the historians and the sociologists, how do you, in your disciplines, when you're centering Asian Americans, how does it complicate the categories of your field? I, I don't think we even know what Asian American means. I mean, we can't even decide on a shared definition of any of these words. I just wanna name that. Like you go to any religious studies conference, the first thing we always ask is, well, we don't really know what religion is anyway. And I think the same is true also with Asian American studies. And the reality is that Asian American is a category that was a coalitional category that was constructed for political purposes. And it's changing to meet the ongoing political needs of our community. And so I just want to name that these categories are always unstable, that they are they carry with them the baggage of people who have historically been in power. So when it comes to religion, it is historically been defined in Protestant terms. Um, and so that is that is completely true. But I, I think just none of these categories are sort of essential categories that are easy to define. Um, so I, I will also say that I, in my research, do a lot of work on Hmong American experiences. And the organization of, among, of Hmong American religious life is pretty different from, um, say, a, sort of a white Methodist a Minnesotan. I, I study Hmong people in Minnesota. And so, you know, the place where you do a ritual won't necessarily be in a temple. Uh, it might be at home. It might be on a farm. Um, and so one thing that I think is really fruitful about studying Hmong American experiences is they really challenge us, uh, challenge us to think about how to study religion in a different way, rather than it being focused on an institution or a set of beliefs, thinking about it as practice, then might illuminate all of the different ways that people do religion in different places and in different ways. Um, so, so I would urge us maybe to think about applying different definitions and it being useful for a more practice-oriented definition in order for us to understand really Asian American experiences. Yeah, I would echo several things uh, that Dr. Borja suggested as well. And I mean, so the first is that, <clears throat> like I think as historian, okay, first of all, the term Asian American, as I mentioned, the Asian American movement activists in the 60s and 70s, again, they didn't see it as a static descriptor. Like they really, 
And the quote that I showed earlier, they actually, some of these folks lament <laughs> how the term is used today, right? Just to kind of be like, this is a category and it just sits there, right? Because for them, Asian American was dynamic. It was a project, exactly what Dr. Borja is saying. It was a political project. And because it's always a choice, right? It's so easy for any of us to just say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm Korean American, right? I'm Filipino American. I'm this, I'm that, right? And we have so many different identities, but there's something, there's something particular about identifying with this pan-Asian, right? Kind of pan-Asian inter-ethnic um, identity. It's the idea that you believe there's some value in identifying more broadly, that there is something powerful about Asian America, right? And so I think that's something that has, you know, remained true since the 60s, even though many of us have for, kind of forgotten the, the activist roots of the term. So I think it's important to remember those. And the second is that, you know, Dr. Borja and I both are both historians. Historians care a lot about historical context. And I think maybe for some folks who are here, if you do like biblical exegesis, I know there um, exegesis, there's like particular schools that really emphasize historical situation, right? You need to contextualize things in historical moment. I mean, that's what historians do like as a career, right? Maybe take our whole lives are about thinking, what does this mean in 1968? What does this mean in San Francisco 1968 versus New York City night, right? So historians care a lot about the particulars and it really drives other social scientists crazy. They're like, oh, so annoying. But the thing is historians do this because they believe it's important. <laughs> like it actually matters. Like it matters where you are. You know, like I'm from New Jersey. I'm like a complete East Coast person. I now live in Los Angeles. I think about regional differences all the time. Like it's just my daily life. I'm like, what, what, is, what does it mean to be Korean American or Asian American in Los Angeles? Like it's a different thing. It feels different. <laughs> it is different. Politically, it means something different too, right? To be Asian American in LA County versus like Bergen County, well, maybe not Bergen County, New Jersey, but New Jersey generally, right? So like location matters. I think we all know that from our just everyday experience. We know that where we live matters, but like even when you think about like the things that you're reading, the people you're listening to, kind of what they're saying, like you need to situate them like location, like in a particular location, um, geographical location, but also time period. That's why I spent so much time in my very few minutes, that's why I spent so much time talking about like what did the Asian American community look like in the 1960s? It was primarily US born. It was primarily Japanese and Chinese American. So it was primarily East Asian American. Like that in many ways is a different Asian America from the one that we have today. And I think that's important for us to recognize like as we try to learn the history of the Asian American movement, because it's really important. And the last thing I'll say is part of the reason why it's so important is that, I mean, the, the work of political scientist Janelle Wong, I mean, she has done so much incredible work thinking about like how these different factors shape voting behavior among Asian American evangelicals in particular. And one of the things that she talks about is nativity. So where you were born in a length of time in the United States, these are actually important factors for shaping political behavior. So voting patterns, the longer you're in the United States, the more, you know, this way you shift on particular issues. Like it's not the only factor, but it is extremely important that for the, for the majority of American history, the majority of Asian Americans have been foreign born. Um, and it's true that, you know, the majority of foreign born Asian Americans naturalize. So in theory, they could vote, but voting behavior, political views, so many things, right? Um, they're, they're different. Um, they're different <laughs> among different constituencies within Asian America. And I think that's incredibly important for us to, to remember and to understand. So history matters. <laughs> and Asian American is, better conceptualized as a political project than as a static descriptor. Right. 
Yeah, and I, that's a, a an ongoing problem in sociology because we're always looking for some kind of a conceptual clarity. So uh, there's a movement, I would say, uh, uh, it was started or formalized, I should say, by this book, uh, Religion on the Edge. I think it came out in 2013, where uh, scholars in the, in the study of religion were pointing to the uh, assumptions of white Protestantism, Christianity, uh, um, Westernization uh, in the sociological study of religion, right? So things that are, that are defined as sociological study makes it sound like, oh, this is universal. This is clearly applicable to everybody. Well, hold on. You're always using uh, white Protestant churches as your example of what uh, you know religion's supposed to look like. So then, this has raised a whole new generation of scholars. Uh, Fengang Yang is actually uh, right on the vanguard, I would say, on uh, some of the ways we need to change even our survey instruments. So the classic question: uh, How often do you attend religious services? There's so many loaded assumptions in there. Attendance assumes that you're doing this on a regular basis. Uh, religious services means that you've defined what you're doing as religious in the first place. So this immediately uh, uh, encourages people who are, for example, Buddhist to say, oh, I, I don't really go to any religious services. Well, what is it that, that the, the thing you do at home in front of the shrine? I don't call that religion. That's not religion. And that's not what the question was asking. So no, I don't attend anything, right? but they are actually doing something that's quite religious. Uh, the problem uh, that starts to um, creep in is, well, if we start to come up with a, a more inclusive way of asking this kind of question, does it start becoming so vague that it starts scooping in everything? And, right, uh, well, I, you know, I, I never miss a fish concert. Um, well, okay, so I, I, is that really religion? I, I don't know, um, you know what I'm saying? But it, it's it's this regularity. This person defines it as a very spiritually uplifting kind of experience, and like they said, they never miss a concert. So, yeah. Uh, at what point do we say like, yeah, religion should refer to these kinds of uh, dynamics, these kinds of practices, but not those other things? Especially uh, with the growth of many people who are saying, I don't have a religion now, right? But they're doing lots of things that appear to be quite religious. So they don't go to a church necessarily, but they are practicing certain things that have a spiritual or religious connotation to it, but they refuse to label it like that. So where do we put those uh, um, folks? And uh, what does it mean to improve our understanding sociologically of religion itself uh, um, such that we are sensitive to traditional differences as well as um, uh, anticipate in some ways the, the changes that are already happening in front of us? Can I jump on, on yeah. this topic? I could talk about the boundaries of religion all day. My favorite topic. Uh, <laughs> but the, the cultural context matters and so does the legal context. So one thing I think that's really important for us to think about when we think about Asian American religious life, and I feel like I need to use air quotes now every time you use the word, uh, is, is that the boundary between religion and non-religion, the boundary between the secular and the religious is handled very differently in different contexts. And we should think about the decision to declare a sphere as religious or a sphere as non-religious, i.e. secular, as doing political and legal work. Um, so when you come to the United States, there are advantages to being able to say that this set yes. of beliefs and practices are legally a religion. Because yep. we value, as represented by the First Amendment, being able to organize a certain sphere of your life as religious. Mm -hmm. So I think we should be attentive to 
the political context and legal context that privileges groups that have a legible religion. And you can get all sorts of advantages if you can organize this thing that's in your life as religion. And it puts people at a disadvantage if they don't have a legible religion, um, a recognizable religion. I think this is a fantastic conversation. We'll probably have various forms of this part of the conversation on legibility, categories, and how Asian Americans, because of our migration from Asia to the US, complicate these lenses and categories. Darren has been so patient. Darren, please jump in and voice some questions. And as Darren jumps in, I noticed in the chat, I wanna to get to Latinx and Asian solidarity, and I wanna to get to adoption, but Darren, you first. No worries. Um, thank you panelists for uh, your co comments so far. I, I just have uh, two questions, uh, sort of summary questions from the audience and some of the previous um, panels. Uh, so the first question is from the perspective of just a lay person who attends a church or maybe a pastor. Um, so to this idea that being Asian American is a political project, uh, what do you say to the lay person or pastor who is really interested in bringing this uh, recommitment into the sort of Asian American story and political project into their church, but they're in a context that isn't sort of adequately described as Asian American. It might be uh, a church formed around an ethnic identity, like a Korean American church or a Filipino church. Um, so what do you say sort of to people in those contexts where um, it's not clear that everyone here uh, sort of identifies or takes part in the Asian American political construction, but um, this is their sort of uh, interest um, in, in terms of, uh, yeah, uh, political identities. So that's the first uh, question. And the second um, is sort of related to just the idea of Asian America. Um, what do you say to someone who finds um, a bit of ambivalence about the term Asian American, not because they don't agree with the political proposals, but because they're really skeptical about the sort of racial construction that goes on uh, behind the term Asian. Many people intuitively find being an Asian American a, a kind of jump in identity. At some point they might say, you know, I'm Chinese American or Korean American. And at some point, maybe through college or Asian American history course, come to identify with this larger term. But um, there are plenty of people who find um, that this jump is maybe too much for them. And they have a kind of skepticism and would prefer to have solidarity around different um, other identities, such as maybe being Christian or being someone who is part of um, a political party. So what do you say to someone who has that kind of ambivalence? Um, yeah, thank you. I can start just, I mean, I think history is instructive on both counts because I think uh, so much to say. Um, number one, like I, I think that even in our current moment, knowing just how many folks have been targeted and the fact that these folks are like Burmese American, Sikh American, Filipina American, um, the 65 year old woman beaten in midtown Manhattan, 65 year old Filipina woman walking to church at 11.30 AM, right? I mean, um, most recently there was a case here in, in Eagle Rock, California or Los Angeles, California of a 70 year old Latinx woman who was, who was kind of mistaken as Asian um, and beaten up on a bus, right? Like two miles from my, my college campus. And um, that happened like in the last few weeks. So, I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a tragedy. One of the things that 
possibly can come out of moments like these, and there are many historical moments like these as well, is greater interest in solidarity and greater understanding of why solidarity is, is good for all of us. Because the reality is, even if there's a moment of World War II, anti-Japanese sentiment. I mean, I write about how like Korean Americans, Chinese Americans, Filipino Americans in California, they're beaten up, they're harassed. I mean, and, and in, by then most Japanese Americans had been basically incarcerated. So in theory, Japanese Americans were no longer kind of walking around Los Angeles and Central Valley, but you have so many other Asian American groups targeted. Vincent Chin case in 1982, Chinese American auto worker who gets beaten up, um, who basically his, his, his skull gets bashed in by two white auto workers with a baseball bat in a McDonald's parking lot because they're angry at Japanese car manufacturers for the troubles at GM and Ford. I mean, so I mean, there's, so the reality is in practice, right? This is, these are not even necessarily, I mean, in practice, we know that even if you look vaguely, whatever it means to look Asian or Chinese, I don't know, whatever it means to look other, racial other, we know that a lot of perpetrators of vigilante violence on the streets don't care and don't necessarily distinguish. And I think that's been true historically. And the other piece of this, and the reason why I think historians spend so much time on Asian exclusion laws, not just Chinese exclusion, but Asian exclusion laws, is that, you know, I think even the idea that South Asians, Southeast Asians, East Asians have something in common. Historians like Mei Nai, historian at Columbia, basically argues like US immigration policies excluding Asians basically constructed the category of Asiatic as a racial category defined by exclusion. So all these people who literally saw nothing, they, they, didn't, they saw themselves as having nothing in common. And many folks actually, Chinese and Korean Americans despise Japanese Americans in California. There's all kinds of documentation historically. But the thing that they all shared in common was they were all impacted similarly by these exclusion laws because they were all grouped together under US immigration law. And one other way of thinking about the Asian American movement is an attempt to kind of redeem this racial category because this racial category is created as a category of exclusion, Asiatic. But in the 1960s, right, there was this idea that, you know what, grouping, this racial category, this grouping can be used for good and for the empowerment and self-determination of, of, of folks in this country, of Asian Americans. So, I mean, that's another way to kind of think about that project, right? As, as in many ways originating in US state-sponsored racist um, legislation, but something that has been kind of reappropriated, redeemed or tried, right? Attempted redemption by Asian American activists themselves. So I think we're part of that tradition. I think that might be one way, I think history can be very instructive for folks who don't see themselves as part of that history. Dr. Hong, uh, I, I think you and I may have uh, had um, similar experiences uh, being around Korean immigrant churches, for example, growing up. <laughs> Is there a space in those kinds of uh, examples in which you can bring in this conversation? Uh, you know, in my limited uh, recall, it just seems like there, there's so much uh, um, historical baggage of immigrants coming to the States and, and all that they recall from their socialization in these other countries and the antipathy that, you know, they have towards other Asian groups, right? I, I just wonder, like, uh, I, I know so many of those uh parents that I recall, immigrant parents that would talk about, well, we're in America now, so things are different, but they, they don't go the next step like, well, how is it different? What makes it different, right? Because they're too busy. They're, they're working their, their, their tails off and they're just 
uh, just trying to get by, but they, they know that there's something different and then they, they don't have enough, uh, um, yeah, thought space to process this. So then the children, right? Uh, us, the second generation, we're, we're sort of left to figure it out on our own. And all we have are a patchwork of different advocates that might show up like, hey, you know, there's an activist friend that just happens to have done all the reading and then you, you have like a, 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 you know, chat session online or something and you can talk about this stuff. Uh, you might get lucky and find a really uh, um, invested high school education teacher that can tell you about the history of Asian Americans. But if you don't have any of that, what can we do? And, and can churches, especially those that are dominated by immigrants, uh, is there is there any particular mechanisms that could change that? I'm going to answer really briefly because I know Professor Bohr has a, has a good story about her own parents, and I, I want I want her to tell it because I love I love that story so much. So I mean, with the Korean immigrant situation, it, it's particular because Korean immigrant churches largely speak Korean, and there are language barriers, and I think that's a major issue. And we you know both of you touched on that um, very eloquently earlier, and it's extremely important to think about. I mean. The thing is, now that I'm in Los Angeles and I'm doing research on Korean churches, I've seen how they actually can mobilize politically. Um, and yes, and I think, um, I don't know if Haypin Im is here, but uh, I think I saw her earlier. I mean, you know, I think folks who are, who are kind of knowledgeable and who were involved after what happened in 1992 in Los Angeles, right? We saw many churches kind of try to step up and, um, have more conversation and dialogue with black churches and others, right? And I think I've also seen like Asian American churches, including Asian immigrant churches, not just Korean, like mobilize um, in particular debates like the Prop 8 debate in the early 2000s in California about same-sex marriage. So there are, there are very clear cases of political mobilization um, in particular place. Yeah, so I think that, you know, the church that you and I grew up in, Dr. Park, like, you know, I think, I left, I mean, I left the Korean immigrant church in the late nineties, right? So um, I, I'm guessing things have changed somewhat. Although when I visit my mom's church, maybe <laughs> it kind of feels like it's, I feel like I'm in the 1990s again, but I mean, I think things have shifted to some extent. What has shifted is the out, it's the, it's the larger landscape, right? And I think the last thing I'll say is, I think in my own experience and thinking, talking to my in-laws, talking to my mom, and even listening to Yoon Yeo-jung, that Minari actress, <laughs> one of her interviews, she talked about how she had this conversation with her son, who I guess is American. Um, she, he grew up here and she actually said, like, I understand the difference now, right? It, it's why it's so much more painful for my son and other Korean Americans who feel rejected by their own countries because this is their country. The United States is their country. And it, if it rejects them, that's like a much deeper pain than me. I'm an immigrant. I didn't, I never expected to be accepted in the United States. Like I fully, like they just, expect it to be rejected and they expect kind of that kind of right um, experience. But for uh, for folks who are US born or kind of came at an early age and consider themselves distinctly Asian American, it is incredibly painful <laughs> to feel rejected by your own country. Because I mean, I study this country. <laughs> Dr. Bora and I, we basically like, our entire careers are devoted <laughs> to the study of this country that we love. And to have that country like completely re feel like it re is rejecting you is incredibly painful. And so I think, you know, I, th I think that's something that I think maybe more and more older generations are beginning to understand, I hope. But I want to hear Dr. Borja's story. <laughs> I remember, I must have told you some other story. I'm going to tell another story about <laughs> specifically and political engagement. 
So here I'm, I'm going to take off my historian hat and I'm going to put on my political organizer hat because the, the reality is I wear both hats. Um, I wear many hats and I, I uh, am involved with this organization, NAPOF, uh, that organized the first statewide effort to reach Asian American women voters in Indiana um, this past year for fall 2020. And there was a big effort to do in-language outreach. And there was, in particular, here in Indianapolis, a very large Korean church that politicians had said, oh, uh, we want to know more about what they need. They don't seem very politically engaged. There was this myth that this big Korean church didn't care anything about politics and anything about Asian American issues. So we organized an effort to phone bank and call these church members and we did in-language outreach. So first of all, if you have language skills, you should do phone banking. It's a great service. And also, if you speak Korean, they'll be nicer to you if you speak Korean than if you speak English. So I'm just going to put that out there. We had a very experienced phone banker. He goes, oh, they actually were nice and didn't hang up on me as soon as I uh, spoke in Korean. One thing we found was that they were actually pretty engaged. They were paying attention, they were talking about the election, they were worried about xenophobic policies, they were worried about all of the things other people worried about. It's just that no one paid attention to them, no one talked to them because there is a practical language barrier. So I think we're constantly underestimating how politically engaged these immigrant churches are, number one. And I also am gonna speak prescriptively here. I don't think we need to impose on them organizing around an Asian American identity. I mean, it might be useful for them, but what if we just engage with them on organizing around a Korean American identity? And what if, for example, we talk about their Korean specific issues and address their Korean specific issues both trans-Pacifically and locally? I think that's a more important way to get people engaged long-term. And maybe in 10 years, they're going to vote as an Asian American rather than a Korean American but I think getting them to vote and care about issues and see them as meaningful political actors who care about Korean American issues and not being feeling bad about that. I think that's the first step. That's fantastic. This is a really lively conversation. I, I saw a question in the chat box, if I can find it again. Um, this is about, yes, uh, this is a question from EP. I am Latin American. How can other ethnicities and minorities best support each other or come together as Christians at large, build the bridges between ethnic communities? Anyone else want to talk about building bridges? Go for it, Melissa. We got five to six minutes here. Oh, okay. So I, I would say um, it's always about identifying shared interests. So I think that there were so many times in the past five years in particular in the context of really damaging immigration policies that were harmful to lots of different people. I think building on shared interests is really key. I also think just taking time to get to know your neighbors, I don't think we do that enough. And so the more we have efforts to just bring people in the conversation, which is going to be something I'm going to talk about in the afternoon, the more we will understand how we can respect the differences, but also find all of the issues, the very local issues that unite us. 
And those local issues might not be big sexy issues. It might not be, you know, addressing um, undocumented migration. It might be making sure there is a streetlight that works down the block. But I think that these very basic issues can be really critical for building trust. And we build trust little by little. And then that's how solidarity is built. When we can show that we are good faith actors um, in working together. But I also think that we need to remember that there's lots of really amazing solidarity work between um, Asian Americans and Latinx people going on right now. And I think one harm of the current moment is lots of times we obscure narratives of solidarity work because it is more exciting to tell stories about conflict. And I think that's true with discussions about Asian black relations. And I think to a lesser degree that's going on with um, relations between Latinx and Asian Americans. Yeah, I was gonna add, um, uh, I think it would be um, also important to think about the stereotypes that I think prevents uh, people from different groups from engaging with one another uh, and to what extent we've internalized those stereotypes uh, all built off of you know white supremacy, of course. So part of I think the task is to uh, continue the project of education, uh, undo those stereotypes, challenge them, show where they came from, show what's uh, so problematic about them, and then uh, in some ways I guess have the uh, um, internal compass to just say I'm not going to give in to those stereotypes and say I'm going to reach out, uh, especially during this moment where we do have something in common. Uh, immigration reform, uh, um, uh, racism, institutional or individual, right? Uh, we have a lot of these ex examples and if we can just overcome what those stereotypes are uh, and then get to a table together and start talking. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with both um, Dr. Park and Dr. Borja. And here again, history, I mean, I think, you know, I think when we think about the fastest growing populations within the US Christian church, these are immigrant congregations, um, immigrant congregations and ethnic and racial congregations, right? So these are not majority white congregations. And so I think in terms of the future, mainline evangelical organizations, historically white ones have to pay attention, right? And I think Latinx, Asian kind of immigrants, Asian Americans, Latinx Americans will be a big part of that story going forward. Wonderful. This has been such an energizing panel discussion. We've closed out the hour. It's almost noon East Coast. We're going to take a lunch break and reconvene at one o'clock for Melissa Borja's workshop. It's entitled, it's a skills, uh, it's a practical workshop. We need to talk. Religious communities and courageous communication about faith and justice at one o'clock. During this lunch um, hour break, I encourage attendees to explore the lounge and, and join a table and chat with folks. And also check out the exhibit hall where our sponsors have their virtual booths. There are publishers, denominational groups, um, ministry groups. Please check out the exhibit hall. And um, thank you all for a, a scintillating morning conversation. Really appreciate your work, Jerry, Jane, and Melissa. It's been fab fabulous. Thank you, David. This is so fun. Thank you. Thanks.